And when you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 1. Turn there, scroll there, find yourself there. Romans chapter 1, don't worry, we're not going backward. First service, I managed to keep my promise. We made it all the way through chapter 4. They didn't believe it. You might not believe it either. But in looking at chapter 4 this morning, we're also going to circle back and answer a question that, quite honestly, I ducked when we were in chapter 1. And it was long enough ago, I'm asking us to turn there to put eyes on it. Refresh our collective memory. Romans chapter 1. Wasn't planning on letting the question hang quite this long. I actually thought it would be like a week or two. And then COVID came around and smacked me for the second time. And we had a month of guest speakers while I tried to bounce back. And now here we are, Romans chapter 1, where Paul sets the stage for everything that, I guess that makes sense. In chapter 1, he sets the stage for chapter 2 and 3. But but in chapter 1, Paul introduces his, his meta-topic, salvation. He introduces it in chapter 1, and he's been running with it ever since. Who needs salvation? Why we need salvation? What happens to us without salvation? Last week, why is there only one way to salvation, and why is his name Jesus? But that brings up a question. What about those who never find that way? What about those who never hear the name Jesus? Who never have a chance to hear or respond to the gospel? Are they saved? Can they be saved? That's the question that I ducked a few weeks ago, more than a few weeks ago. And it's the question I want to circle back to this morning. What does the Bible say about those who have never heard the name Jesus? Lord this is, this, is, this is deep weeds we're about to venture into. We want to get it right. We want to hear from you. We always want to hear from you. And every time we open your word, there's an opportunity to hear from you, from the logos of your word, from the rhema of your word. Lord, you've brought us here with plan and with purpose. No one is here by accident. There's no such thing as a coincidence. And so, Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts, open our minds to receive the things that you've brought us here to glean, to show us how you would have us apply these things to our lives. Redeem this time for your namesake. And we ask in your holy name, amen. What about people who have never heard the name Jesus? If you've never come across this question, I'm, honestly, I'm surprised. Because if you've been walking with the Lord any length of time at all, you've either, most of us have had someone ask sincerely, really wanting to know, what about? More commonly, I encounter it as an attack, as, an, as a way to undermine your so-called loving God. They have to hear a name. They have to hear the gospel or they're going to hell forever. If you've never heard the question, I promise you, you will. Someone is going to ask, what about the innocent person in some unreached people group? Some remote island, some deep jungle, some lonely mountaintop that's never heard the gospel. Are they truly eternally lost? Is his or her soul irrevocably destined to hell? I ducked the question a couple weeks ago, or a couple months ago, not because it's not important. 
it's, it's, it's hugely important, but because God burdened me with other things at the time. So I ducked the question, and I did it by calling out the false premise in the way it's most commonly posed. What about the innocent tribesmen? That's actually what it's called in academic circles, the innocent tribesmen dilemma. And what I said, because it's true, there's no such person. That's what I said a few weeks ago, because it's what Paul says. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, and a couple three times in chapter 3, there's no one good, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no such thing as an innocent tribesman. In chapter 1, because that's where I asked you to turn, Paul says it this way, starting in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Without excuse. Another word for that is guilty. There's no such thing as an innocent tribesman. We're all born into a state of sin. We prove it by sinning, all of us, even those born on islands and mountaintops and in jungles. There's no one who doesn't need salvation. There's no one who doesn't need the gospel. There's no one who doesn't need to trust in the blood of Jesus so their sins can be forgiven. So what about the person who's never heard of Jesus? Does the Bible offer any hope? Depends who you ask. If you Google the question, what about the person who's never heard of Jesus? One of the first results to pop up, at least when I did it, was an article by John Piper on his website, desiringgod.org. John Piper, very well-known, well-respected, evangelical pastor, Baptist pastor. I used to live a few blocks from his church, Bethlehem Baptist in Minneapolis. Pastor John receives a letter from a 12-year-old asking this question, and he posted this response, which I thought was interesting. <clears throat> Dear so-and-so, you asked what happens to people who live far away from the gospel and have never heard about Jesus and die without faith in him. Here's what I think, what I think the Bible teaches. God always punishes people because of what they know and fail to believe. In other words, no one will be condemned for not believing in Jesus who has never heard of Jesus. But does that mean that people will be saved and go to heaven if they've never heard of Jesus? No, that's not what God tells us in the Bible, according to Pastor John. The main passage in the Bible that talks about this is Romans 1, 18-23. Here's what it says, and then I'll make a comment or two. And the first part we just read, the wrath of God revealed from heaven, ungodliness and righteousness of men, since the creation of the world, invisible attributes, being understood by the things that are made so they're without excuse. And then Paul continues, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were, thank nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Notice several things. This is still Pastor John writing. 
Notice several things. One, all people know God, even if they've never heard the Bible. What can be known about God is plain to them, verse 19, although they knew God, verse 21. Number two, the way they know God is by the way God has made the world and their own consciences, verses 19 and 20. Number three, although they know God, no one who knows God anywhere in the world honors God as God or gives him thanks, verse 21. Instead, they suppress the truth, verse 18, that is, they resist the truth deep in their hearts and exchange it for other things that they would rather have, verse 23. Therefore, number four, they are without excuse, verse 20. That is, they're guilty and deserve to be punished. So no, I don't think the Bible teaches that people can be saved without hearing the gospel. And then he goes on to quote from Romans 10. Romans 10, beginning in verse 13, you can flip there super quickly or just listen. Romans 10, beginning in verse 13, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then, Romans 10, 14, shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. From which Pastor John concludes his words, you need the gospel to be saved. Period. And he closes the letter. That's what's called the exclusionist view. The person who's never heard the gospel, who has never heard the name Jesus, is excluded from salvation, is excluded from heaven. And on the face of it, it makes a certain amount of sense. There's no one who's not guilty. Paul keeps telling us that. And the only way to be declared not guilty is to call upon the name of the Lord to ask to trade places with Jesus. But you can't call on the name Jesus if you don't know the name Jesus, so you can't be saved. That's the exclusionist logic. And it's not a, a, an unbiblical perspective. It's not silliness. It's not abject foolishness. It makes a certain amount of sense. But I think you can tell from the way that I'm, I'm leading up to this, I think it also overlooks something. You know, one of the challenges in Googling our way through studying the Bible is that it's not always obvious what convictions, what assumptions, what presuppositions a particular author or article or website might hold to. Once upon a time, I was putting together a message, and, and I wanted to, to give examples of the names of God. And there are many, right? There are the common ones, Abba and Adonai and Elohim. But I, I wanted to include some obscure ones. I don't remember why, I just did. El Elyon, God Most High. It's a name of God we read in Psalms. El Roy is a name uh, by which Hagar prays to God. El Roy, God who sees. So, so I'm, I'm digging around the interwebs, and, and I know that, 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 that this plethora of names exist, but I haven't committed most of them to memory. I come across this table, this chart, and it was fantastic. References and cross-references. So, so I grab what I need, but, but it, it, it's so beautifully laid out. It just sucks me in. All kinds of stuff I didn't know or I'd forgotten that I'd known. I never saw that. Oh, that's so cool. I'm completely using that because that's going to preach. But, but I keep going and I come across something that makes me say, hmm, I'm not completely sure they have that right. And I keep going and I see something that makes me say, I'm pretty sure they don't have that right. 
And then I come across something that I know isn't right. So I start scrolling all the way down to the bottom of the page and there in the fine print, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. <laughs> Let me be clear, not saying John Piper is a closet Mormon or a cult leader or a false teacher of any kind. He's a mainstream conservative evangelical teacher who happens to be a Calvinist. We talked about Calvinism a few weeks ago, part of Reformed theology, which teaches, among other things, that some people are born with no possibility of salvation. None, zero, not at all. We don't know who they are, these never-to-be-saved souls, but we know it's not just people in jungles and islands and mountaintops. It's people born in the same places that we are who attend the same churches, many of them that, that we do, who hear the, the name of Jesus, who hear the gospel, perhaps again and again and again and again, but are incapable of responding, incapable of believing. For them, there is quite simply no hope. Now, this isn't a message about Calvinism. I already did that once this summer. This is an observation that those holding a Calvinist position that only certain souls will make it to heaven, can ever make it to heaven, generally hold the exclusivist view, exclusionist view, so I'm sorry, which is again, some can't get to heaven without hearing, I'm sorry, no one can get to heaven without hearing, believing, trusting in the name Jesus, and it makes sense. I know I mangled that, but let me try it again. It makes sense that those two views would go together because people who already believe there's a set of people who cannot, will not ever be saved aren't going to have a hard time expanding that set that they already believe in to include those who haven't heard. So our first takeaway this morning, it's a minor one. It's an on-the-way-to-getting-where-we're-going kind of a takeaway. When doing online research, when Googling for articles and answers, consider the source. Even when you're reading things that I repost, I quote and link and repost to a lot of articles by a lot of Calvinist guys. John Piper, Johnny Mack, R.C. Sproul, Ray Orland, who I quoted at length a couple weeks ago. Gospel Coalition. These guys are very smart and they write really well or they have people on their staff who write really well. But, and they write a lot on subjects that are important. Some of the best articles that I've read about abortion, both before and after the Dobbs decision, articles I've read and passed on are written by some of the people that I just named. Doesn't mean I agree with everything they think or write or believe, especially as we get away from practical theology and into things like soteriology, the theology of salvation. So let's get back to our question. Let's not, let's not be satisfied with what one well-known teacher might say. Let's consider what the Bible says. Can the person who's never heard the name Jesus be saved? I think, if you haven't guessed yet, I think the Bible says yes. And a major reason why, I believe, is found in Romans 4. You were starting to lose faith, weren't you? <laughs> you, you, you weren't. Turn, turn to Romans 4. 
Actually, actually turn to the end of Romans 3, because this is where Paul begins the thought he's going to carry all the way through chapter 4. Romans 3, verse 28. Paul is summarizing what he's been talking about. He wraps it up by saying, therefore, we conclude, that's how we know he's summarizing, that a man is justified, saved, forgiven, made righteous, not by keeping the law, but by faith apart from the deeds of the law. That's the point Paul's been making for like two chapters now. We're saved by grace through faith and only through faith. We can't work our way to heaven. We can try, but we'll fall short. Some of us can get further than others, but it's like trying to jump across the Grand Canyon. You know, first service, Caleb was sitting in the front row. I said, Caleb is young and he's kind of nimble. He'd probably make it 10, 12 feet maybe. He, he looks like he's got springs. I'm going to make it two, three feet at the most, and I'm going to drop like a rock. But guess what? Caleb's going to be down there at the bottom, same as me. He might get further than me, but neither one of us is getting across. So too with our works. We can try and try and try some more. We will all fall short. Even the Jew, Paul? As we turn to chapter 4, Paul is still debating his imaginary reader his believing Jewish friend up in the church in Rome. The believing Jew who can't quite let go of the traditions of his ancestors in Israel, who can't quite just stop saying, Paul, I don't get it, we've got the law. Yes, Paul's been explaining, that's true. You're right. Israel was given the law, but why? The purpose of the law wasn't to save. It was never to save. The purpose of the law, we know this, was to prove what? No one can keep the law. Paul's been saying that. He's been saying it again and again. He says it again in chapter 4. What then shall we say? That Abraham our father is found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. If you're an underliner, underline that. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. There's a ton going on in those four verses, but, but the overview of it is pretty straightforward. Paul is still trying to get his point across to a Jewish reader, and he says, hey, if I haven't succeeded so far, let me try another line of argument. Let's go to the patriarchs. Let's go to the father and the grandfather and the great-grandfather of Israel. Let's go all the way back to Abraham. Because if anyone was ever saved by works, it was probably him, right? So was he? Was Abraham saved by his works, by what he did? If he was, verse 2, that would be something to brag about. Except that he wasn't. Abraham didn't work his way to salvation. What did he do? He believed. He trusted in God's work. He trusted God's word that God's work would be sufficient. And because he did, because he trusted God, because he believed God, he was justified. He was made righteous. He was made righteous by faith. His works didn't help him, couldn't help him, verse 4. If anything, Paul says, they heard him. Paul is referring to what we know as the first law of holes. The first law of holes is what? When you find that you're in a hole... Stop digging. Paul's saying the, the, the harder you dig, the behinder you get. The more you try to work your way to heaven, the more you prove that you're not worthy of heaven. 
Your works don't get you further, further ahead. They get you further behind. And, and we know that, right? That's not a new idea for us. Our righteousness, Isaiah 6, uh, 64, 6, our righteousness is filthy rags. Big heaping pile of used toilet paper is literally what the Hebrew is saying. Sorry to gross you out, but, but, but that's the impact of the statement. Our works are repugnant to God. They will never get us to heaven. They only prove we don't deserve heaven. They only demonstrate our inadequacy, our wickedness, our sinfulness. So how do we overcome that? By giving up is Paul's point. Stop digging. <laughs> you can't work your way to heaven. Stop trying. To him who does not work, verse 5, this is the key. To him who does not work, but believes instead, believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. There it is again. And not for the last time. We're saved by grace through faith. We're saved by believing we need to be saved, believing that we can be saved, and by putting our trust in the one who has promised to save. It was true for Abraham, Paul says. Verse 6, true for David as well. It's not hard to read Paul's play here. Pretty easy to understand what he's doing. He's trying to prove that Jews and Gentiles are both saved the same way. That's what he's trying to demonstrate. Saved by grace through faith. If he can prove that that was true for Abraham and David, most people will conclude, okay, if it's Abraham and David, it's probably true for all Jews everywhere. So he turns to David, to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed, now David, I'm sorry, now, now Paul quotes David, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Now remember, this is David that we're talking about. David who was a liar, an adulterer, a murderer, and probably some other things beside. But as he wrote those lines, as he wrote Psalm 32, the lines that Paul quotes there in verse 7, David was a liar, adulterer, or a murderer, except not anymore. What was he? Forgiven, righteous or forgiven, justified. Not by works, verse 6. Verse 5, by faith. David wrote those words knowing he had, by faith, received grace. And he stood before God, forgiven. Here's the question, faith in who? Faith in what? That's where we're going we're not there yet. Paul's not done. He's, he's got a fine-crafted argument. Let's, let's, let's let him unspool it for us. Verse 9. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. Is this salvation just a Jewish thing, Paul asks? Is this a limited-time offer to Abraham and his descendants only, like the mail that you get sometimes, non-transferable. Is this like that? No. Paul answers his own question, no. It's not like that. And he tells us why, verse 10. How then was it faith, how then was faith accounted while he, Abraham, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? 
Answer, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. If you, if you pull out the pronouns and the it's and the... Abraham, Paul is pointing out, and David, but he's back focusing on Abraham. Abraham was saved by faith before circumcision, before the law, before anything we associate with Israel. He was saved by faith. In verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised. He received the sign of circumcision. It was, like baptism for us, a testimony of the inward change that had happened. He received a seal of the righteousness of the faith that he had had before he was circumcised. That he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. This is a huge idea. And Paul's going to develop it more in coming chapters. But, but let's, just, let's just take it at face value. Abraham, Paul just said, Abraham is the father of who? Father of Israel. Everybody knows that. No, the father of everyone who believes. Not just Israel, everyone. Circumcised and uncircumcised. Jews and Gentiles. Our shared faith, our collective faith, our common faith goes back to Abraham. For all of us. Seriously? That's, that's the response of Paul's reader up in Rome. He knows that that's what his reader is going to ask, and so he answers the objection. Seriously? Abraham, the father of those unwashed pagans? Yeah, Abraham says, verse 12. Abraham is the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, Jews, but also walk in the steps of faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. You don't have to be Jewish to exercise faith. Abraham's the father of all of those who turn to God in faith, Jew and Gentile. All who walk in his steps of faith, all who believe the same way he did. Which is how? Paul's not there yet. He's getting there, but let's let him get there. Because he's, he's still debating with his reader. He's still shooting down every possible objection a Jewish reader could have. Every, any objection someone who's still clinging to Jewish exceptionalism could make. Verse 13, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Again, deep weeds here. Heir of the world ultimately refers to Abraham's seed, singular, who we know to be Jesus. Paul made that point in Galatians, right? But here he's also talking about Abraham, and he's telling us again, Abraham is the father not just of Israel, but all of those who, who believe, all of those of faith. And he's emphasizing, Paul is emphasizing that promise to Abraham is by extension to all who believe like Abraham, and it has nothing to do with the law or feasts or sacrifices. Let it go, Paul says. The law wasn't even given until 430 years after Abraham. And even if that wasn't true, and it is, it still wouldn't make sense to keep looking to the law for salvation. For if those who are of the law are heirs, verse 14, if just being Jewish and being under the law would enough, well, then faith would be made void and the promise made of no effect. Why would God be promising promises? Why would faith be effectual if it was enough to just have the right DNA? 
It's not about the law. The law brings about wrath, verse 15. For the, where there's no law, there's no transgression. Again, we could camp out there for a long time, but short version, the law doesn't give life, it brings death. The law isn't saving anyone, it's revealing in everyone the need to be saved. The need to be saved by faith. Faith saves. Paul says again, faith saves. Faith saves. And it's the only thing that can. Faith in who? Faith in what? He's getting there, but he's not done because he's not, Paul's not 100% sure we're tracking with him. So he's going to say again what he just said. Verse 16, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all of the seed, not only to those who are of the law, Jews, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. Doesn't matter their background. The faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. But Paul... You've got to believe that his reader is getting whiny at this point. Either his reader has given up or he's just whining. That's not what God said. Except it is what God said. Verse 17, God said this to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. I've made you a father of many nations. Genesis 17, in the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. Let's untangle that. God, Paul is saying, is the giver of life. So far, so good. He's the giver of life. He gives life to the dead. Through faith, he gives you and I life, you and I who are dead in our sins. Through faith, we can be born again. God brings life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as if they did. God brings life from lifelessness. And Paul's asking us, turn this corner with him, he's asking us to look at what God did in Abraham's life. Abraham, in hope, verse 18, believed God when he said Abraham would have a child and through that child would be the father of many nations. Paul is joining those two promises together. You're going to have a child and you're going to be the father of many nations. Those two things go together. You can't be a father unless you have children. And if it's you or me, we would have freaked out because Abraham was 100 years old. But Abraham believed he would have a child, verse 19. Not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was 100 years old. And he didn't worry about the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. He believed he was going to have a child because God said he would. And Abraham believed God. He believed God said what he meant and meant what he said and believed God would do what he said. Abraham took God at his word. And verse 22, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Notice how Paul bookends this chapter. He's almost done and he's, he's bracketing it. He's ending the way that he started. It was accounted to him for righteousness because Abraham took God at his word. He was saved. And here's where he makes sure that we're paying attention. Verse 23, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. 
The story of Abraham wasn't just for Abraham. The Holy Spirit ensured that it would be written down and passed on for us to tell us, convince us, remind us we're saved the exact same way. Verse 24, it, meaning faith, faith shall be imputed to us, credited to us, counted as righteousness for us, us, we who believe in him, God, the one who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and raised because of our justifications, but because of our justification. But, but look at that more carefully. Believing God. Not believing the gospel. Not the full gospel, at least. The promise of the gospel. The potential of the gospel. The heart of the gospel, which is the heart of God. That's what Abraham saw and knew. That's what he had access to. That's what he believed. And that's how he was saved. Romans chapter 4, Paul is saying, he's, he's arguing, he's declaring, he's testifying, we're saved. You and I, the church, is saved the same way Abraham was. Actually, he's saying we're saved the same way that Abraham was, and it doesn't matter who we is. This is how people are saved. He's, he's, he's not laying out a new plan. There's no new program. He's saying salvation is by grace through faith always for everyone. By grace through faith in who? In what? Before you answer, look at verse 24 again. Righteousness is imputed to those who believe God the Father. Righteousness is imputed to those who believe God the Father. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Not that he raised Jesus from the dead. Believing God who raised Jesus from the dead. Abraham was saved by faith in the saving grace of God. A God whose promise Abraham chose to believe, not knowing the details. Had Abraham ever heard the name Jesus? Not that we know of. Did he understand the gospel? I don't see how. Did he have any concept of the cross where the wrath of God was poured out on his own son? He might have had a, 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 a vague understanding of substitutional atonement from the story of Cain and Abel, but that's it. The feast, the sacrifices, they were 400 years away. Did Abraham understand the great exchange? Could he, have, even if someone had tried to explain it? How long would it have taken him to understand Jesus paying a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay? I think that would have made his brain explode. He didn't know the name Jesus. He did not, I'm convinced, did not understand God's plan of salvation. What he knew was that God had promised to bring life to lifelessness. Didn't know what it meant. Didn't know how he'd pull it off. Didn't know the chain of events that it would set off. He just believed God. And because he did, God says he was made righteous. Because he believed God, God made him righteous. So let's ask ourselves again, what about the person who's never heard the gospel, who's never heard the name Jesus? By, by the way, made it through chapter 4, and I want points for that. 
But, but let's circle back and ask, can that person who's never heard the gospel, who's never heard the name Jesus, be saved? The exclusionist still says no. The exclusionist is going to camp out and say, there's one name given among men by whom we must be saved, Acts 4.12. One name given among men, that name is Jesus. Except Paul just told us we're saved the same way Abraham was, and Abraham never knew the name. He knew the necessity of salvation, but not the name by which God would accomplish salvation. So isn't it possible that person on the mountain, in the jungle, on the island, that individual in the slums of India, or in the madrasas of Saudi Arabia, or out there right now on the streets of Wichita who's never heard the gospel, is it possible they could be saved the same way? I think the answer has to be yes. If, if nothing else, if nothing else based on the fact God's already done it, he's saved that way before He's saved based on obedience to the word that was received, based on response to the light that was given. He's saved that way before. I think it's silly to think he couldn't save that way again. But. Huge shift here. Because I'm about to make some of you mad. But I think the best thing we can do with that answer, assuming you even agree with me, I think the best thing we can do with that answer is forget it. Set it aside, set it on fire, abandon it, put it where we can't find it, pretend it doesn't exist. Why? Because Pastor John wasn't pointing at nothing when he took us to Romans chapter 10, when he reminded us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's not wrong. That's black letter scripture. And even though I disagree with his conclusion, it's still a really important point. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Why did God impute righteousness to Abraham? Because he had faith in God. Why did he put his faith in God? Because he'd heard from God. Abraham heard God's words and chose by faith to believe them which was counted to him as righteousness. But before Abraham could believe, he had to hear. He had to hear the thing God was calling him to believe. Abraham accessed grace, not randomly, not out of nowhere, not out of thin air, but because he believed the word of God that came to him. He believed the word God spoke to him, God sent to him. How does that happen today? Hey, let me rephrase. How does that usually, normally happen today? Because, yes, I hear the same stories that you do. People in Muslim contexts having dreams and visions about Jesus and his finished work on the cross, coming to faith through dreams and visions. I hear those stories. I have no reason to disbelieve them. I hear stories about missionaries bringing the gospel, they think, for the first time to an unreached people group. They've never had the Bible in their language. They've never heard the gospel. They're told about Jesus only, only to reply, oh, is that his name? Yes, we know about him. He's spoken to us. We just didn't know how to call him. I believe those stories too. I absolutely believe that stuff happens. I believe it is happening. I have no problem at all whatsoever with the theology. But it should absolutely not change our ministry, yours and mine. 
It should not change our ministry. Why? Because God not, has not called us to watch as he saves people miraculously. He sent us to share the gospel, to preach to every living creature, and to do it passionately. Can, can the Lord use dreams and visions? Of course he can. Of course he does. And not just in the Muslim world. I've known personally three or four people who came to saving faith that way, and one of them is in this room right now. But the norm that we see in the New Testament and the norm I believe God intends for us is that God would use us. I believe the norm God intends for us is that he would use us to speak his words of truth, to tell people, to bring to people the way of salvation. Acts chapter 10. You don't have to turn there. Time's getting away from us. But as Acts chapter 10 opens, a Gentile named Cornelius is seeking the Lord. Cornelius is aware of God, believes in God, wants to have a relationship with God, but knows that he doesn't. He perceives that there's a barrier there, something hindering him from having a relationship with the true and living God. And so he prays, God, I want to know you. How can I know you? Still Acts 10, God sends an angel to Cornelius. And the angel says, Cornelius, here's what you need to do. You need to send for Peter. This is where you'll find him. Send him. Have him come to you. Have him explain to you what you must do. Send for Peter and he'll tell you. Acts 11, 14. Send for Peter and he'll tell you the words by which you and your household will be saved. And here's my point. God could have used that angel to share the gospel. He's sending an angel anyway. Wouldn't it be more efficient since the angel is going to Cornelius? Hey, angel, while you're there, lay the gospel on him. Save Peter the work. But he didn't. God could have had an angel share the gospel. God could have skipped the angel, just brought the gospel to Cornelius in a dream or vision. Didn't do that either. He said, Cornelius, go get a believer. Go get a Christian. Go get Peter. He's probably the closest guy. Go find the nearest believer and ask him how you can be saved. That's how God worked in the book of Acts. i got to assume that's how God prefers to work today. As is so often the case, God wants us to pray as if everything depends on him. And then work and serve and witness as if it all depends on us. Is that presumptuous? Not if God has sent us. Not if that's what he's asked of us. And he has. He has sent us. And that's exactly what he's asked of us. To be witnesses. Paul knew better than most people God didn't need him. Just spent a whole chapter reminding us of it. And yet how did Paul spend his life? Paul's life as a believer. Paul's life having come to faith he spent laboring for the sake of the gospel. He didn't assume, well, God is God and he'll find a way. No, God, Paul risked his life to be the way that God could use to bring the gospel to people. Hunger, sleeplessness, beatings, imprisonment, betrayal. 2 Corinthians 11 is a whole chapter of everything that Paul endured willingly, eagerly that he might be the way that God brings his word that people might believe, that people might respond, that people might be saved. 1 Corinthians 9.16, Paul says, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. 
And woe to us. Woe to us if we hide behind our theology, build an excuse out of God's sovereignty. God's God, he'll find a way. God's God, he doesn't need me. All of that is obviously true. God does not need us to preach the gospel. And, and you can't convince me otherwise. God can save souls without you or me or anyone else giving them the gospel. He's been doing it for centuries. God doesn't need us, but he's called us. He doesn't need us, but he's sent us. How do we dare refuse? How do we dare give him less than our best? Romans 10, once more as we close. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. That's us. You might look down at your feet and say, not too beautiful. Some things that need attention. But beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And God says, how beautiful are the feet of those who do what I've asked them to do, who do what I've sent them to do, who share the gospel of peace through conversations, through text messages, through phone calls, through visits, through posts. Those who share the gospel of peace through ministries that they serve and support. Those who serve the gospel of peace through the love that they convey, through the grace that they impart. Jesus, I ask that that would be us. That you would make it us, that you would make us that, all of that. I ask that through your spirit, you'd enable us to reflect your love in everything we say and do. We ask that your spirit would convict us, remind us we're here on mission, not for ourselves, but for you and for others. Lord, we ask that your spirit would challenge us, spur us on, that we might be used of you, that through our obedience the lost might be saved. Jesus, I pray your name would, would ever be on our lips and, and that our feet, our, our feet, our feet, this church, the hands and the feet that we have to offer would carry your gospel to those who haven't yet come to the cross, would bring your word and your truth and your promise that they might put their faith in you.